0: Well, what a Grand Prix that was, an underdog victory for Pierre Gasly and Alpha Tauri, really the race that Formula One needed, given that we've been talking about how straightforward and and boring the last few races have been on this podcast. And appropriately enough, I'm joined by Gary Anderson, as always, and he's particularly relevant for this because... Gary Anderson was kind of the king of the underdog and unlikely victory so this was absolutely from the uh, the Gary Anderson playbook. We're going to throw a few of your questions related to the race at uh, Gary but we're really focusing on on what Alfred Tari did. So really Gary I want to start with what what's it like to be in a team where first you know there's an opportunity that's presented itself in a race and then as you kind of get closer and closer you realize that you're you're on the brink of pulling off something Ridiculous like the, the Fisichella win at Interlagos in 2003 or the Stewart win at the Nurburgring, you know, any number of these successes you've been involved with.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's all very nerve wracking, to be honest, because you're never quite sure uh, why you're there, to be honest. You know, you, you obviously got yourself into a position where you're, you're up front and, and potentially going to do something. Um, but obviously, you're just waiting on the big boys coming at you. And, you know, the, the interesting thing yesterday really was that Alfa Tori and Pierre Gasly, I mean, uh, you know, two Mercedes finished behind them. Yes, I know they had help on the way, but, um, you know, Bottas ran a fairly nondescript race, to be honest, and ended up where he ended up. Um, Hamilton obviously had his penalty, but the rules were there for everybody, so you've got to know them. And it it looks to me like Hamilton and or Mercedes didn't actually know the rules of the pit lane closing because they were questioning the fact there was no red light at the end of the pit lane. Well, there isn't, so... It's it's one of those sort of strange things, but you do need a bit of help on the way. You know, the Nuremberg Ring thing with with Stuart was great because other people just fell off. But on the way there we had to do the job correctly. You know, so that's the satisfying part for yourself. You can't control the others falling off. Same in, in um the same in, in Brazil um with Fisichella. You know, we couldn't we couldn't stop the others from falling off. They fell off, they crashed. Fisichella had exactly the same opportunity to crash if he wanted to. Um, but he didn't. He drove within the circumstances, drove within the car. We tried to execute the, the weekend or the race as best possible. And at the end of the day, you know, the guy that crosses the checkered flag first wins that race. The race, is, the race should not just be about being on, on pole position and disappearing into the distance. It should, be, it should be a race that has consequences for errors. And yesterday we saw that. You know, we always say that you know at the front it was a bit boring down the midfield pack. It was really interesting. Race, well, the midfield pack yesterday was at the front. That was the thing that's different about it. It was still interesting. It was still a challenge. But the midfield pack in that second half of the race were the guys doing the winning. So um, it just it just shows you that it, you know competition is in that field in the in the middle of that field. And once they get to the front, they can still perform very very well. And a big congratulations to Toro Rosso because or Toro Rosso, yeah, Toro Rosso even Alpha Tori. Because, you know, I've criticised them a lot in the past for being inconsistent. They would have flashes of of competitiveness and then drop away. But yesterday, th- this season, to be honest, I think they're tidying that up a lot. And yesterday, they,
0: they did a good job. Well, it's interesting for Alfa Tauri because over the past year or a little more, they've been very, very good at maximising these chances, haven't they? Because they had the, the Kvyat podium at uh, Hockenheim uh, last year, then the, the Gasly second place at Interlagos, then this. They've kind of taken up the racing points uh, mantle of being the ones who are there when others uh, make mistakes. Do you think there's a, a specific reason for a, a team being able to to do that? What does it what does it reflect about the way the team operates?
1: Well, it reflects a a, a good management style. You know, Franz Tos is a racer, so if he can sniff it, an opportunity, I think he would he would dive in there and try and, and try and uh, take that opportunity open handed. And it, and that breeds through the team, you know, that that's what Jordan, that's what we were. We, we were a team that if he throws an opportunity and we'll try and make the best out of it. Yeah, you screw up sometimes as well. But at the end of the day, you know, you're just trying to get that one weekend of of, of glory. Um, you know, it's what, 12 years since Toro Rosso won a race. Uh, Toro Rosso, yeah, it was Toro Rosso, Alfa um, Tori now. But it's 12 years since they won in Monza in the wet with Sebastian Vettel. And, you know, that's a long, long time they've been competitive. But they, as you say, they've had the odd good result but never one to this level. So I think if you breed it into the team to have a look at opportunity, and if it comes towards you, then drive within it. I I remember Austria, um, whenever Takuma Sata crashed, um, Giancarlo was running around, Keller, that is, was running around like 14th or something, and just running at the pace of the car that was running 14th. And Takuma crashed, and we called Fuzzy into the pits, sort of fairly rapid, fairly quickly. He went from running 14th to 5th, and then after the, the, the restart, he was running around fifth at the speed of a car that was running fifth. It just needed to be put into that position to actually get there and, and actually respond to the situation. He was being chased, I think it was by David Coulthard in McLaren. You know, well above our performance level, but David never got near him, never got a sniff at him. So at the end of the day, you know, just that switch that moves you from being somewhere, running eighth, ninth, tenth or whatever, to being running first, second or third. And suddenly, you can actually do that. Now, you know, for sure, Hamilton was quicker, all that sort of stuff, and you'd expect it to be. But um, it wasn't an easy an easy thing for, for Mercedes to come through the field. And again, Hamilton started to suffer his heating problems. But uh, for, for Alfa Tauri, you know, it's a great little team. They they are, as you say, I think they're the Jordan of the past in a way. You know, they're run by a good guy in France, Tost. They've definitely got that sporting attitude to try and do something different, and it's paid off for them a few times.
0: I think the you mentioned the, the good management, and the thing that's always interesting is when teams get in this situation, there are some teams or drivers that kind of go to pieces, aren't they? And that They they know they've got an opportunity, and there was the point, once Gasly had passed Stroll at that restart, they had control of the race, ultimately. It was theirs to lose, but given how long they still had to go, it wasn't like they had a few laps to, and to not really think about it. They had so much time to think about it. There's really calm, sensible uh, communications over the radio. Gasly was pushing and he used up his his pace resources well but didn't overuse them doing all that is really really difficult isn't it and it's so easy for that to slip away because we see this so often teams get into a an out of position position as it were and then they squander it and it just goes against them but that that capacity to just zero in on it is really really impressive isn't it that's that's the thing that you you need a team in this situation to do
1: yes you do and and the thing about it is you you can't put everything off until the last lap or such you know he couldn't put off looking after the the rear tires that little bit he had to do it the whole the whole period of time that he was in the lead he had to think about where he was getting going to get to and how far he had to go and again with the battery management all that stuff you know he drove that car and won that race yesterday we, we keep talking about the driver driving the car alone and unaided you know he could have easily squandered his tires very very quickly when he got in the lead you know a bit too much excitement, a bit too much throttle. Three or four laps, of rear tires are, are are knackered, and somebody's coming at you. But he didn't do that. He kept just driving neat and tidy and clean. I never saw one one lock break. You know that sort of stuff is the stuff you've got to do every lap, and he did it every lap. So he definitely showed yesterday, you know, a true professionalism. Obviously, know he's quick. You know, he didn't get a good run at, at Red Bull for whatever the reasons being. But I think the Red Bull team, relative to the, to the uh, Alpha Tauri team. Is a complete contrast to uh, a top end team that expects to a family team that is just happy to be there doing a very good job and you know a very good job in, in Formula One. You, you t- you've finished in the top ten, you've done a, a very a pretty good job, to be honest. You get into the top six, and you're doing very well. And, and they're knocking on the door of that now. Yesterday's win was obviously a bit of a, a luxury, and it won't happen very often, I don't think. But at the end of the day you know the family team attitude has brought the best out of Pierre Gasly.
0: Well we've got a few questions about Gasly so we'll we'll work through some of those. Actually the first one doesn't come from a listener. Well he does listen but it comes from uh, comes from a colleague in Scott Mitchell in fact who just asks if you think Pierre Gasly is maybe a brilliant underdog, but not necessarily the leading man to be in a top team, and, and what drivers did you work with that maybe fit that description? I mean, the one that springs to mind for me, you've already mentioned, is Giancarlo Fisichella, who seemed to be a wonderful underdog driver, capable of amazing things, but then put him alongside Alonso in a championship-winning team, and he's a little bit, a little bit not average, but just, just a step behind.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, whenever you look at uh, Giancarlo's result in Spa with, with Force India at that time, when he finished second, on pole position and finished second, and in the next race, he's in the, you know, the works Ferrari team. Um, you can see, you can you can understand that he fell over very quickly when the pressure came on from a top team. Giancarlo on his day was as quick as anybody, you know. Um, and, and a fantastic driver, fantastic, you know, talent, to be honest. His finesse with the car and feel with the car was, was fantastic, but it wasn't consistent enough. And that was the problem. And again, when we got against Alonso, or as I say, when he went to Ferrari, you know, it all just fell apart on them because it wasn't that family attitude around them that would put arm around the shoulder. They just expected every time you get in the car, you're going to drive flat out. Um, and I think Pierre might fit into that same realm. However, I I, I think I see more of a fighting attitude from him um, with the uh, with uh, Alfa because he has had some good results through having a battle. You know, it's always been a battle, and. I think that he's he's been able to overcome his teammate, you know, pretty often, and his teammate's no slouch either, to be honest. So end of the day, I, I think he has got more of a fighting attitude than uh, than uh, Fisichella had on a day, every day type thing. But he needs—you um, never know until you get the opportunity. You know, can you stand the pressure of the big team? Maybe the big team should change a little. But you know, what we do see with Mercedes is that it's a big team, but it's family or family operated as such. You know. Total Wolf puts the arm around the shoulder of everybody a bit and, you know, the whole company works as a unit. Um, I'm sure they'll be having chats this morning in the office about what happened yesterday. And, you know, you've got to always recognise your downfalls and, and try and eliminate them for the future. But it won't be done in a in a, a nasty way at, at Mercedes. So I think Mercedes are are definitely the, the, the team that could give Red Bull a little bit of a lesson, you know. You always... They're you know cr- both Christian and and Helmut Marko are a bit sort of bold with their statements about stuff. And that, that includes engines, you know, engines, drivers, anybody. Uh, they're bold with their statements about their performance, and sometimes you need to sort of bite your tongue a little bit and, and keep it back. And uh, I think Pierre Gasly could could you know benefit from being with a team like Mercedes. I'm not sure he will benefit from being with a team like Red Bull.
0: Well, that's, that's the big question. In fact, we do have a few questions about this. There's one from uh, Christopher Partridge, who said, should Red Bull switch Albon for Gasly next year? Or should it drop Albon back to Alpha Tauri and hire an experienced hand like Hulkenberg to put in alongside Verstappen? Or should it keep everything as it is and let Gasly build some uh, more experience in Alfa So, So what would you do with Gasly? Because unquestionably, this has created them a little bit of a headache hasn't it because Gasly's been strong not just with that win but he's actually been strong consistently through the season
1: Yeah he has very very good and, and you know the thing about whenever he got the, you know, removed from Red Bull last year he, he bit the bullet and got on with it as well you know he could easily have taken that you know and and felt pretty bad about it and I'm sure he did internally but he actually got on with his job his job was to drive for for uh, Toro Ross as it was then got that one right um, and he did it very very well so you know, he 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 bought into the situation as best he could, and he did the job. the The thing, you know, the thing about it is that obviously, Franz Tost, Helmut Marko, Christian Horner, they know more about the Gasly's uh, mental capacity, I suppose, within the team, um, and they they would know a lot more than we would do. If I was, if I was in in um, in Red Bull's position right now. I would focus very hard on the car because you know the car's not good enough. And in, in reality, yes, Max Verstappen was was ahead of of uh, Gasly on the grid by a reasonable amount. He, Verstappen did a a, a one twenty nine seven nine five, and Gasly did a one um, no one nineteen seven nine five, and Gasly did a one twenty point one seven. So it was ahead of him by quite a significant amount. But the team for AlphaTauri, you know, they as a team, are doing a very good job with their car right now. And in reality, in the race, their car was probably the match for uh, for the Red Bull. And that shouldn't be. So if, if Red Bull are ever going to win a championship, and it's looking more and more doubtful as the years go by, or win another championship, they need to get the better car there. Now, who's in that second car doesn't really matter. But at the minute, the car seems to be built too much to suit Max Verstappen, who has got his own driving technique, you know, he's brave, all that sort of stuff. But they need to buy into the fact that Alex Albon is a good driver, Pierre Gast is a good driver. Either of the two of them in a good car will do a good job, but they don't get a good car with Red Bull. So which one of those two you pick, I don't think there'll be a big difference in it. I think both of them can do a very good job. Both of them can be podium contenders in a reasonable car. So I don't think there's a big difference there. If you go for Hulkenberg, you're buying into the fact that your young driver program doesn't work and you need to bring in somebody from the outside, somebody with experience from the outside. So I don't think that's the right thing to do either. But I think they need to focus on a car that's more of a drivable package to suit good drivers and not somebody like Max Verstappen, who's an exceptional driver.
0: There's a question as well from Amedeo Felix, which is looking a little bit more at the Alpha AlphaTauri team, asking, can you really class it as a small team when it's part of the Red Bull portfolio of companies? It gets every bit of assistance from the main team as the regulations uh, allow and for context to that, obviously they've got loads of 2019 Red Bull parts on the car. I remember, we sat down, I think, with Jody egginson the technical director, didn't we, in Barcelona back when we were allowed human contact with uh, with other people in the in the before times? So, yeah, how how much do we temper this fairy tale story given the Red Bull allegiance?
1: Well, the fairy tale is really they won a race. You know, they they wouldn't have won that race if the circumstances hadn't led to it with a red flag and. The Magnussen stopping and that penance and all that sort of stuff—it's it's what evolved to that that, that got them into the position where they led that race. And what I'm saying is, from there on in, they led the race well. Um, you know, it was great to see them, McLaren, uh, them, McLaren and um, and Racing Point having a bit of a battle for a second and third. Stroll got left behind a little bit, so the battle was really you know hard on between Gasly and and uh, Sainz. And you can see the cars moving, you can see the cars driving, you can see Saints pushing hard to try and get there. They had to drive the cars to win that race when it came to them. The circumstances meant that the win came to them. So fairy tale, yes, it is. But it's, it's not going to be a regular occurrence. But you've got to take those chances. So yes, Alfa Torre have a, have a good relationship with Red Bull. You know, they are the junior team as such. And they do get lots of parts. But then... You know, so does the others. So does, does Racing Point. So does Haas, and Alpha Torre have done a good job. They've done a positive job. They were they put themselves in that position, and they got a fairy tale result out of it.
0: And when it comes to to being in a situation that that teams in, when you are smaller and have less resources than the big teams, there's nothing really wrong with leaning on a on a big team, isn't it? What they've done by maximising the non-listed parts, it means that they focus what resource they have into areas where they can have a big performance difference. And this is the thing that's maybe shifted a little bit in the team in that James Key, who, as he's shown with McLaren, is an excellent technical director, used to work with you, of course. You taught him everything he knows. But perhaps if there was a criticism of James Key and this was what Red Bull didn't like, he was almost trying to do too much in-house, as in they were operating almost like a big team, whereas under this regime, it seems like they've kind of accepted what they are, that they are a, a middling team and doing everything they can to make sure that what they can put into it maximises the return in terms of performance?
1: Yeah, I think James always had the philosophy that um, he wanted the team to be able to stand on its own two feet if that ever ever happened. You know, there was quite a few years when James was there where Toro Rosso, you know, they weren't stable. They weren't, they weren't necessarily just going to be the Red Bull team forever. Um, there was a chance that they would have to go out and, fi- and find a new owner as such. And I think, you know, if you have a big relationship with a company like Red Bull and suddenly you know, the, the the pocket doesn't get as deep, so they don't keep running them and they have to find another um, another owner, that would be very difficult to switch it back on to making your own car again. So James wanted to keep the philosophy that you know they could stand on their own two feet. Right or wrong, who knows? Within the set of circumstances that Tor uh, that uh, Alpha Torre R, you know, this works for them. They can focus their, their attention on the aerodynamics of the car. And you and you look at the car. It's different from Red Bull. You know, it has a different front wing philosophy, nose philosophy. So everything it's it's that bit different you know it's it's much more different than the um, the racing point as to the mercedes for example much more different so at the end of the day they do stand on their own two feet and do what they can and those bits you know the listed parts and non-listed parts the parts that they're doing the aerodynamic surfaces are in theory the parts that make the car go faster or slower um so they take on the challenge of the speed of the car all the other stuff, like the gearbox and the uprights so or wheel bearings, whatever, they're all things that you know. Yes, they're important, obviously, to the whole package. They're they're very important for actually getting to the checkered flag. You know, the more miles you can put on them, with more cars using the same bits, the more reliability you'll get out of them. So, you know, buying into those parts is not wrong, and um, it does mean that it, you know they are not a standalone team. If if there was an ownership change tomorrow, it would be tough for them, unless they, that owner was still willing to work with Red Bull.
0: Well, there is a question about the, the nature of the team from Paul Madden who says, why did Dietrich Mateschitz put all the money into Toro Rosso rather than just piling it all into Red Bull over the past years? And again, for context on that, it's a strange situation, that team, isn't it? Because they bought it, not quite by accident, but they did it because Minardi was really, really close to going under and there was an opportunity there. The, the team was kind of formally for sale for a bit and now officially it's not for sale, but there is kind of an unofficial, well, it could be. They've always stipulated, however... It has to stay in Fienza. It's strange, isn't it? Do you, do you think that there, there's a that it's beneficial for Red Bull to have that that second team and spend money on it? I guess it's easier now with a new Concorde and everything, making it a little bit more self sustaining.
1: Yeah, I think you know, for any any company, it's 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 two different companies. Red Bull is Red Bull. Alpha Toria is a different, a completely different company. So it's all about marketing, and obviously Mattis and his and his shareholders see the marketing benefit for red bull and now from alpha tori so it's uh it's as simple as that you know it's it's what you get back from from having worldwide publicity on tv obviously the, the with the coronavirus and the races not happening and stuff that was a major hit for everybody as far as marketing was concerned but at the end of the day it's evolved itself it sorted itself out and they've even they've been you know it's, it's even stronger now i suppose you could say than what it would have been if the coronavirus hadn't happened, because TV is a much bigger thing now. There's no no spectators going to it, so more people are seeing it on TV. And actually, you know, I have to say that watching it on TV, you see much, much more than you do um, if you're at the circuit. So I I don't think it's a wrong thing. It has to justify its existence. It has to justify its existence financially. Um, and the new Concord agreement seems to have addressed that situation quite a lot. So it's a much more plausible reason for having a second team going into the future now, with the new Concord agreement, than it was in the past. So uh, it wasn't a bottomless pit. It isn't a bottomless pit in the future. It was a bottomless pit up to now. So at the end of the day, I can only see it being uh, being positive for Alpha Torre to have as a second team, as such, and bring up new drivers. But they have to do that. They have to look at bringing in the new drivers somehow. At the minute, there are some good New drivers coming through GP2 right now or um, F2 right now, and they they're going to need that opportunity soon. And there isn't that many opportunities there now, to be honest. You know, with Alonso coming back, Lewis you know staying probably, Bottas signed up again, blah blah blah, all that sort of stuff. There there's not that many seats available for those new guys to get into the cars. And uh, I think Red Bull and Alpha Torre are going to have to show that, that that they are still a team of bringing up. New, young drivers.
0: Well, Yuki Tsunoda, who's doing very well in Formula 2, he's going to test the car in Abu Dhabi at the end of, of the year. And there's there's a feeling that, provided he does qualify for the super licence, which he should do, he's on target to do, he's probably going to be in that car in Vyat's place uh, uh, for, for next season. So there, there is that, that conveyor belt. But it's interesting, this thing about being a, a smaller team, because... You know, you've always said in the past you love putting one over the, the big the bigger teams. You you seem to thrive in that in that smaller environment. But at the same time, you're also quite not harsh, but you don't give the smaller teams a free pass for not maximising what they've done. You've criticized Torosso Toro in the past for underachieving and and quite fairly, so how important is it to create that kind of mindset where you where you make the team around you feel that they're they can be realistic, but also not let that realism just allow them to kind of slack off. It's quite a fine line, isn't it? Because if you're making your people feel like you should be winning every week, obviously that's just ridiculous and that's not going to work. But if you're going to make them feel it's all right to be 12th every week, just because that's where you are in the, the budget allocation, you're not really going to have these great days, are you?
1: Well, I think I think you are actually. Uh, you know, what I think for any team is you have to realise where you think you should be. For Mercedes, without doubt, going you know, anti race this season they should be, in their books, they should be first and second on the grid and they should be first and second in the race. Anything less than that and something's happened, something's gone wrong. Either the car wasn't, they didn't get the best out of it, mistakes were made or whatever. And then you have to recognise those reasons. Now, as I say with AlphaTori, taking them as an example, um, you know, they have to recognise where they should be. Uh, They, I think, could be quite happy if they've got two cars in the top 10 in qualifying. And if they've got two cars in the top 10 in the race, they should be reasonably happy. But that doesn't stop you from from doing better. That means that you have a, a line where you say, okay, we did that weekend okay. We got our two cars. We were 8th and ninth on the grid. We finished 7th and 8th on the grid in the race. And that was a really good weekend. So, but how do we do better? But if one weekend you're, you're 8th and ninth on the grid and the next weekend you're 15th and 16th, that's whenever you've got to sort of have a little bit of an internal look at it. That's the same as Mercedes, one weekend being first and second, and the next weekend being seventh and eighth on the grid. You know, that that's not acceptable. So for every team, it has its level of competitiveness, and it needs to sort of slot itself in there. If you can do that consistently, or fairly consistently within one or two places, then you try to move forward by recognizing what you're doing right and recognizing what you're not doing as right as you should do. And that's all it's about, you know, you can't stand back and say, oh, Alfa Torre are a great team because they won a race this year. You know, you have to look at the bad days and say, why didn't we do better that weekend? You know, why weren't we in the top six that weekend whenever we had the opportunity to be? So it's not, I don't think you can, you can criticise a small team like Alfa Torre for not winning every race, but you can criticise them for not being, as I say, top 10 every weekend both in qualifying and in the race, or even maybe, you know, a little bit better than that. You have to set your standards as to what your budget, your manpower, your expectations are. And then you just try to eke a little bit better out of it. Exactly the same as Mercedes do, just a, you're in a different slot on that grid, you're a different position on that grid.
0: Yeah, and of course there were, you know, other teams that will have reason to kick themselves. Uh, you, obviously you mentioned uh, uh, your, well, your former team, Racing Point with Lance Stroll. They did have control of the race, Kind of for the for the restart, although Stroll didn't have a tow, so that was always going to be a disadvantage. But there, there is a question related to that from Paul Cliff, which is about the rule allowing you to change tires under the under the red flag, which obviously benefited Stroll specifically because they left him out, and that meant that he was able to start the, the second part of the race in in second place. Do you think that rule needs to change, or is it? I mean, there, there is a reason for it being there in that it's part of the of the the repair thing, and that we should also remember that there's a reason why you might want to change tires after a red flag because in this case there wasn't but there can be a pile of bits all over the track can't they
1: no I, I agree with the rule being that you can change the tires i think it's right because as you say you can get a cut tire and not see it um whatever so it has to be that you can change the tires however what i would say is you have to change it for the same tires on the car not a different tire so if you change it the red for a red or a yellow for a yellow or whatever it doesn't constitute your pit stop it allows you to have fresh tires. Of the same compound as you as you had on when the red flag came out, that sorts everything out in my book. If a, if a t- if a team has pitted early, you know, like ghastly, then you know he can get a new set of tires. But they're the same compound. He's he's, he's complied with the regulations because he he pitted and changed compounds, whereas Stroll didn't pit and change compounds, so he did get an advantage out of it. It's the way the rules are, so we can't criticize Stroll for doing that. that that's the way they are. But I think that, that should change, and it's quite simple to change. You can only replace the tires on the car with the tire that was on the car when the red flag was waved, other than wet conditions.
0: If you were still on the the racing point pit wall, of course, as you were in the in the Jordan days, uh, in its previous form, would you be a little bit disappointed with what what happened in that race? Obviously, third place is a great result, their first podium. But would you be looking at it maybe as a victory shot lost rather than a podium gained?
1: Um, yeah, I think I think I probably would have been disappointed. I might have been even more disappointed in what happened to, to Perez because, you know, he was up there and, and doing a good job and then suddenly he wasn't for lots of reasons. And, you know, that happened because of coming into the pits behind Norris and losing a bit of time there. Then whenever he, he had a, a bit of a slow right front tyre change and then suddenly secure cars leaving the pits. Because if you come in in a mass bolt unit and you end up, taking a little bit longer you know there's other guys that came in there behind you are going to be leaving the pit so he was stuck and lost a lot of positions from it so that would that would uh, annoy me a little bit I think that uh, you know there's lots of reasons to believe that this double stacking does create that situation and I rule you know something needs to be done to stop that happening or allow it to happen so you slow down you know again that's going back to the the percentage section times and all that sort of stuff so that there is an opportunity to Exploit that percentage of sex in time if you really want to, but it's the same for everybody um I say it was a set of consequences for Perez that led him to not getting a good result out of it at the end of the day but for for um for stroll I think he should have done better there. He should have been in the battle more, maybe he'd still have finished third, but I think he should have been in the battle more, and he wasn't whenever he got dropped off by um Ghastly and Saints, you know he got dropped off basically suddenly there was two and a half three seconds or something between them and And that meant the pressure changed. Saints could get his head down and and chase Gasly as opposed to keeping an eye on the mirror for Stroll being there. So, yeah, he he, he let it fall away from him, to be honest.
0: Uh, And and looking at a a day like this, obviously you had a few of these in your career. What's it? What's it kind of like after the race? You have all that moment of celebration. Are there points kind of later in the evening when I, I'm sure you celebrated with the odd glass of wine, or uh, maybe even two, as uh, sometimes you would? Is that are there just moments where you're sort of shaking your head, thinking, "How how on earth did that happen?" Because th- th- there's no, I don't think there's anyone who would have tipped Gasly to to win that race. And even though you can look back at the race and obviously it's very clear how it happened, but there must just be moments where you're just like, "How how did we pull that off? Isn't isn't, isn't that amazing?"
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you saw Gasly sitting on the podium. He was he was the first one to be thinking that. How did that happen? Um, it, it's it's you know it's an evolving thing. It's it's um, you, you sort of you're working for it through the race. You know, it's not just when the checkered flag falls. Yes, that's confirmation that you've done it. But you're working for it through the race. You're you're pushing for that sort of that little edge that might give it to you. So, you know, you sort of know where you are for quite a lot quite a lot longer than others know where you are if you get my gist so it's not just sudden a sudden surprise at the checkered flag you didn't just win it in the last corner in the last lap you actually did a, a lot of planning on the way there to try and achieve it and try and get the car to that checkered flag in the best way possible and i think Gasly's radio traffic was about that you know it was about looking after the car his you know his engineer was working quite well with him um at the end of the day it is unbelievably exciting then the problem is you take a deep breath and think hmm, there's another one coming up best get on with that because this one's over and done with you can't change that yes enjoy it for the moment as you say have a glass or two just to celebrate it but you know the next race is coming now so you have to make sure you analyze what happened in this race how you what you did it that you maybe did without thinking about in this race but what actually helped you to win that race you have to look at that quite deeply and make sure you got that in the, in the locker but the next time those circumstances might just pop up on you, you know, there's something there that says, Give me that opportunity again and I'll I'll remember what I did this weekend and, and use it. So um you, you try as hard as you can just to have an open mind all the time. You can't you know you can't have a strategy just to fix black and white. This is what we're doing from the start of the race to the end of the race, unless you're on the front of the grid. Like a lot like uh, Hamilton or or Botas, you know. If you're there all the time, you can have more or less a very, very strict routine as to how you go about stuff. But when you have to think on your feet, that's the time a midfield team can can duck and dive a little bit more.
0: And I guess taking the the longer term view, when you're in your you know, the situation you're in now, and you can look back 17 years to Interlagos 03 or Nürburgring a few a few years earlier, that must be just a, a great memory to have. Barely a day goes by when something like that's not mentioned on, say, social media or whatever. People remember these days far more than they would any Two dozen Mercedes wins.
1: Yeah, I mean the, the, they are the days that some some popped up out of the blue. I've still got the pictures on the wall here and there, you know, uh, and they're they're big days, a big days for me. As you say, they're a long, long time ago now. So things things have moved on, things have changed. But the weekend in Monza showed that actually, no, very little has changed. You can still get that oddball result from just things going to suit your set of circumstances on that given day. Um, it's not that you work worked some absolute magic, you know, it's just the fact that everything fell into place for the magic you were trying to work um, to sort of concrete it and help it. So they are big days. Toro Rosso looked back at this one for a long time. You know, when it, when you think that back in 2008, when um, Vettel won in the wet in, uh, Toro Rosso, for Toro Rosso um, at Monza, they, they were on pool. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, they were on pool. And, and won the race. So they, you know, that was a race win with the competition around them. This was a different shorter race win. This was out of the blue by something happening, something different happening. So two totally different wins altogether. Um, so which one would you take as, as the important one? You know, 2008, as I say, was a race win. They beat everybody else. This one, they were in the right place when the checkered flag came down, but they had to get themselves into that right place and they did it. So you look back at these races like I do at, two, at um, 2003 in Interlagos or 99 with Stuart or, or even the, the lesser days, you know, whenever you've, I mean, Canada what was 96? I think we finished 2nd
0: and 3rd to John Alessi. Yeah, 95, wasn't it? 95.
1: Those are good races. Those are good days when you've done a decent job. You know, they're not always about the top step of the podium. There's lots of other things coming up. And as you say, you know, Toro Rosso have done a good job. A third, you know, a third or a fourth or a fifth, that's a very good job for most of these teams normally because, in, in theory, you should have two Mercedes, two Ferraris, and two uh, Red Bulls. And then next up, seventh. That's that's about what you expect out of a weekend. If you do that, you've done a good job. And if you can get into that top six, then very good. Now, Ferrari are helping everybody do that at the moment, but uh, that's a different story.
0: And just before we, we finish, just on a little bit of a, a different topic, obviously there was lots of talk about Williams at the weekend with the Williams family moving out of the team. It, it is the end of an era isn't it because that that team will continue but the, the family ownership will, will will be gone and you raced against Williams for a long time obviously you, you've known people like Frank Williams, Patrick Head etc so kind of as, as a rival uh, for them what do you make of, of the end of that team and the role it had and and why did you never work for Williams?
1: Um, why did I never work for They didn't want me
0: I suppose. You and Patrick Head could have been a a good but combustible combination. Let's put it.
1: I think there would have been that chance, but you know, uh, one one thing I always looked at was Williams. Williams were an engineering team. They were they were an engineering company going motor racing, whereas in my my book McLaren were always uh, a commercial company that found motor racing required you know for their engineering. Um. So they had their, you know, Williams' role was the engineering priority type thing. And, and I think that was all the way through. It, it's it's sad to see the, the the family name going down, but then, you know, as I say, in, in the past, we've had the Brabhams come and go, you know, McLaren as, as now is nothing like what McLaren was, all that sort of stuff. So at the end of the day, you know, things do move on, things do change. I just hope these new guys really do get behind it and look at the, look at the priorities of making the team successful again is, is like making it like Alfa Torre are now, to be honest, bringing them along a bit and getting them into a competitive level so they can fight with people a bit. That's step one of this, this operation getting to the front again, is going to be a very, very difficult thing, but getting them to being competitive with teams like McLaren and teams like, um, Alfa or, or Racing Point, that's what they have to get Williams back up to. Um, so I hope they have that vision and what the name is over the door, to be honest. Um, I think the, the history of Williams goes out the door with Frank Williams and Patrick Head. I think that was Williams. What it is now is not Williams. It's a whole different deal. So I've seen the split between the Williams heritage, you know, as happening quite a few years ago, to be honest.
0: Yeah, I guess it's a little bit like what you've got with Racing Point now. That That is sort of the team you were once at, but it's also completely different, isn't it? It's got some of some of the DNA flows through it, but... Uh, times have moved on, but yeah, uh, yeah, but a big, uh, a big, a big story for Williams. Uh, well, thanks very much, Gary. It's been great to get your insight into into these shock wins, given that you uh, were with the. Uh the chief architect of a few of them back in the back in your prime as it as it were uh obviously we will be back next week with more from gary so if you've got any questions related to the what's it called the tuscan grand prix um Magello, which is going to be a celebration of, of ferrari of, of a sort i doubt it would be a, much of a celebration but but there we go do do chuck them at us on on twitter you can follow gary on at gary anderson f1 or throw them at myself on at ed straw f1 And do make sure if you haven't already that you subscribe and if you enjoy what you listen to, don't be afraid to chuck us a quick review on your podcast platform of choice as they're always much appreciated. So thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back in the middle of next week with more from Gary.